are sea turtles important? He says, sea turtles are part of the old wilderness of the earth, the environment in which man developed the nerves and hormones that make him human. And if we let sea turtles go, it's a sign that we're ready to let all wilderness go. And when that happens, we shall no longer be exactly human. Welcome to the first episode of the Save the Wild podcast. I'm your host, Brad Nahill, and on this show, we will bring you stories of people working to save wild animals around the world. That quote that you just heard was about Archie Carr from David Godfrey of the Sea Turtle Conservancy. We'll talk more about Dr. Carr later in the podcast. If you don't know me, I'm the president of Sea Turtles, spelled S-E-E, a nonprofit sea turtle conservation organization, and I've been working with sea turtles and other wildlife for the past 20 years. Over that time, I've heard lots of great stories, and I'm looking forward to sharing them with you. On this show, we want to bring conservation alive and show how committed people are helping to protect our natural world. Each episode will feature different stories about inspiring people or efforts to bring back an endangered species from the brink. Since our organization focuses on sea turtles, that will be a main topic, but we'll also look at other animals including whales, tigers, and more. A quick note on the format since this is the first episode. We will start with a short section where I share news and opinions on current events of wildlife research and conservation. I'll also briefly highlight what is happening with my organization, Sea Turtles. Our sponsor ads will be a bit different. Instead of an advertisement, we will feature a short interview of a conservation partner of one of our main sponsors and how their sponsorship benefits wild animals. Following that will be our storytellers. We will dive deep into the backstories of lesser known efforts to save wild animals. Today's episode, just in time for World Sea Turtle Day on June 16th, we are focusing on Dr. Archie Carr, known as the godfather of sea turtle research. We will talk to several people who worked with him and knew him well. I hope you enjoy the show. After you listen to this episode, please help us out by subscribing to the show, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. That makes a big difference and helps us reach a larger audience. At the beginning of the pandemic in the U.S., a number of articles came out claiming that empty beaches were resulting in comebacks of sea turtles in places like Thailand and Florida. The reality, as you might imagine, is a lot more complicated. As countries closed their borders and as tourism came to a standstill around the world, we reached out to our partners in the larger community to see what was happening on turtle nesting beaches. What we learned is that in places where the biggest problems sea turtles face are related to too many people, on the beach or in the water, the lower numbers of people on beaches probably benefit sea turtles. For example, in Florida, we're likely to have seen fewer turtles hit by boats, which happens to hundreds of turtles per year, and fewer hatchlings led inland by lights, although Florida's beaches are now uh, reopening. Other problems related to beach overcrowding include people disturbing nesting turtles, beach furniture getting in the way of the turtles, trash on the beach and in the water, things like that. But to be clear, even with these benefits, nobody is happy about the pandemic. Nobody's cheering for empty beaches due to COVID-19. Everyone is affected and any benefits are likely to be short-term unless they lead to major changes in how people are managed in sea turtle habitats which we hope will happen, but you know, there's no guarantee. Conversely, in places where the primary threat to sea turtles is people hunting turtles or collecting their eggs to eat or sell, the situation is hurting conservation efforts. 
Having people such as tourists or international volunteers on the beach looking for turtles can benefit conservation efforts by helping to monitor the nesting. Projects that depend heavily on volunteer help and income from travelers have been devastated as the pandemic results in people more desperate for food and income. This is what is happening in places like Costa Rica, Panama, Grenada, Sri Lanka, and many other places. In response, we launched our Sea Turtle Emergency Fund to help get resources to projects that need urgent help. So far, we have distributed more than $30,000 in grants to seven organizations, and we could really use your help. These funds both help to keep turtle protectors on the beach, as well as providing employment for local residents. We're currently doing a fundraiser on GoFundMe, so if you'd like to help, head over to our website and click on the Emergency Sea Turtle Fund banner at the top of the page to donate. We'd really appreciate your support with that, and all funds donated after the fees will go directly to these nesting beaches. The other big thing happening in the sea turtle world right now is Sea Turtle Week. Why should sharks have all the fun? This week is something our organization is helping to coordinate for the wider sea turtle community, and we are thrilled to have more than 100 organizations around the world participating. The week runs from World Oceans Day on June 8th all the way to June 16th, which is World Sea Turtle Day. Every day in between highlights a different species of sea turtle and a corresponding threat. Check out seaturtleweek.com altogether for the full schedule, list of participating groups and their social media links, and things you can share in your social media to participate. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter at seaturtleweek, and be sure to use the hashtag seaturtleweek whenever you post. We're excited that our first sponsor for this podcast is Nature's Path Organic Foods. Through their cereal line, EnviroKids, this family-owned organic food company has supported our sea turtles organization for more than a decade, and we wouldn't be here without their strong partnership. I spoke briefly with Jyoti Stevens, Vice President of Mission and Strategy at Nature's Path, and also part of the Stevens family that owns the company, about how they support wildlife conservation. All right. Hello, Jyoti. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Brad? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for joining us. Uh, can you tell me about the work Nature's Path and EnviroKids does to support wildlife conservation? Well, first and foremost, uh, all the food that we make is certified organic, and organic farming as a system has a number of wildlife benefits from increased biodiversity on the farm to preventing toxic fertilizers and chemicals from entering our waterways, um, which has been shown to negatively impact marine life. Further to that, um, each animal featured on the front of our EnviroKids product uh, represents an endangered or vulnerable species that we help support through one of our many partner organizations. And we do that through using our box to help spread the message about the animal and the challenges that they face, the good work that the organizations that we support does, as well as donating 1% of sales to animal conservation through 1% for the planet. Um, so far, we've been able to donate more than $4 million to these organizations. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so why is helping endangered animals so important to EnviroKids? 
We really believe that um, kids have the power to change the world, and we want to inspire future leaders uh, by helping them save animals, you know, through the cereal that they eat in the morning. Um, every part of our, our planet is home to animals facing extinction, um, and that's why we know that it's important to help save endangered and vulnerable species. Um, we're so excited about the new Turtle Splash cereal. Can you tell me more about how that supports sea turtles? So we're really impressed with the work that um, Sea Turtles does, and we're uh, proud to partner with you. Um, each box of Turtle Splash includes a symbolic adoption certificate um, in partnership with Sea Turtles and the Billion Baby Turtles program. And what's really cool and unique about it is that um, each box has a unique pin and you can go on to our website and uh, log in your adoption. And so far, more than 5,000 sea turtles have been adopted. Well, that's fantastic. I remember when we first met years ago before I even started sea turtles and, and mentioning this as a, as a possible idea down the road. So it's, it's really fun to see it uh, come to fruition. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's been a partnership long in the making, and I'm really excited to see it come to life. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jody. Thank you, Brad. Dr. Archie Carr, if you're not familiar with him, is sometimes called the godfather of sea turtle conservation and research. World Sea Turtle Day is appropriately Dr. Archikar's birthday, and to celebrate, we wanted to share some stories of his life and work with you. He helped to create what is now known as the Sea Turtle Conservancy, one of the largest and most effective organizations working to protect sea turtles. His work has resulted in protections for some of the most important turtle nesting beaches in the world, including Tortuguero National Park in Costa Rica. Dr. Carr, or Archie as he preferred, was born in 1909 in Alabama and from an early age developed a love for nature. He earned the University of Florida's first doctorate in zoology in 1937 and worked for Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology for several years where he worked on taxonomy and evolutionary biology. He taught as a professor at the University of Florida for years, influencing generations of researchers. He traveled around the Caribbean looking for turtle populations before scientists knew where they were travels he recounted in his seminal book, The Windward Road. His impact is more than I can recount in the time we have available, but Dr. Carr's list of accomplishments includes award-winning books, more than 100 scientific papers, and many awards. He may be best known for his work at Tortuguero, the biggest nesting beach for green turtles in the Western Hemisphere. His work started there in the 1950s and is now one of the longest continuously running wildlife research programs in the world. The population there has rebounded and the beach is one of the most visited nesting beaches in the world and a training ground for many aspiring biologists. I'm excited to bring you a few stories from some people who knew Dr. Carr well. You'll hear stories now from his son, Chuck Carr, a retired senior conservationist with the Wildlife Conservation Society, two of his last grad students, Dr. Karen Bjorndahl of the University of Florida and Dr. Annie Malin, a retired senior research scientist at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Finally, we have David Godfrey, Executive Director of the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Archie was a great family man, and he and his wife Marjorie, who was also an accomplished conservationist, raised five kids, four of whom went on to careers in conservation. The family lived on a large farm in Florida that had a big impact on their life and work. 
Here is Chuck Carr talking about his parents and David Godfrey talking about their loving relationship. We were out on that farm, which had a hell of an impact on, on me and my family, my brothers. They got the farm because daddy was a naturalist and a writer. That was the main reason we got the farm, it was surrounded with wilderness, with trees. It's about 200 acres total and only about 60 of it devoted to bahia grass for uh, beef cattle. So, and we had that pond there and a lot of other natural history to learn about and enjoy. And um, so we thrived on that. And I, I have to add there that um, my mother's biologist too. And so the, between the two of them, I had quite an upbringing and a, quite a introduction to natural history and how to enjoy it and appreciate it. Well, she got a degree from Florida State University. And it was Florida State College for Women. <laughs> and then she had a job down here near Gainesville, taking care of some quail for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And the quail were not doing well. So she determined to go to the University of Florida to see if she could get some help from some of the young biologists there. Well, lo and behold, she bumped into Archie Carr and they fell in love and got married and started, well, later having kids. And, uh, and so she was interested in uh, natural history from the get-go. And then after um, some of the kids grew up a bit, she became a prominent in the state of Florida as a conservationist. And she, she put together Florida Defenders of the Environment, and they stopped the construction of the Cross Florida Barge Canal during the President Nixon era. And that was, that was astonishing. It was a huge accomplishment because the Army Corps of Engineers was in charge and they were doing it and everybody wanted to build this canal that would cut the peninsula in half and destroy a, a beautiful river, the Akawaha River. But they stopped it. And so Mother went on to great prominence in the environmental community here in the state of Florida. The relationship between Marjorie and Archie, um, how they were this really incredible dynamic duo of scientists and conservationists and, and each eloquent in their own right, uh, and how Archie was himself a very passionate, um, you know, a romantic, you know, a romantic about nature, a romantic about conservation, and a romantic about the love of his life, Marjorie Carr. And um, just a couple of years ago, um, uh, Archie's family shared uh, a couple of letters that Archie had written to Marjorie uh, on, on one of his many travels when they were apart for you know, long periods of time. So here's what he wrote to her. Sometimes to me, you are something tiny and infinitely precious, which I must watch over tenderly and keep close to me forever. Sometimes the beauty of you expands and mounts to Andromeda and beyond, and I look up and gasp at the cosmic splendor of it and whimper and beg you to come back to me. Sometimes you're just the loveliest woman I have ever known. Always I love you, I adore you now and the day I die. When the electrons of the last atoms that have been me fly out of their orbits, it will be in quest of you. Archie was famous for his sense of humor. Here are a couple of great stories from Karen Bjorndal and Annie Malin. During uh, the early time of World War II, uh, all of the 
various scientists at universities were sent letters by the U.S. government asking how they felt they could contribute to the war effort. And uh, Archie's response was that he could imitate more frog calls than any man alive. He, he ended up teaching physics to pilots and also training pilots how to survive if they jettisoned into the bush somewhere. Uh, he used Grand Bahama as the training ground. So he did put into the war effort, certainly, and I don't think his frog calls ever played a role in that. Well, another time of, of more personal, he, he loved to play pranks. And so um, his lab in uh, Carr Hall, he kept uh, sea turtles there in tanks and they would splash water around, you know, salt water, obviously, and then we would all walk through that salt water. And so it just gets to be a salty, muddy mess on the floor. And one time he had uh, been visited by a, a very distinguished herpetologist, and he was introducing uh, me to this distinguished herpetologist. And he said, yes, this is Karen Bjorndal, my uh, graduate student. She doesn't believe in the germ theory. She rolls hard-boiled eggs across the floor before she eats them. I'll never forget the look on that man's face as Archie said that to him. And the fellow looked down at the floor, which was just appallingly filthy, and looked back up at me. And at this point, Archie went, you know, whistling off out the door, um, having made this great impression. Their family had an alligator in Weewa Pond that they were very fond of and used to nest every year um, on a little peninsula very near their house. And so it was just a little jut of land going out and she would put her nest way out on the end of it. And, you know, it's a big, big mound of vegetation and she'd guard it. And he knew her so well, he knew exactly how hard she would guard it so he knew how far she'd run back along the peninsula if you went up there and kind of threatened so when people would visit them his favorite thing to do was to say oh let me show you our alligator it's nesting you know so you have like a whole string of people and he lead the way right up to the nest close to the nest and then he would artfully you know get to the back of the group and the group it, just as they're realizing what they're looking at, would have the alligator charge them. And he knew how far she would go. And he would go back down the, the, the path and then f act like he fell. So he'd trip himself and block their way so they couldn't get away, right? And he just thought that was so funny. It's a lot like another thing he did when you would ride in a boat in Costa Rica at Tortuguero. He'd, we had these little tiny John boats. They were about 12 feet long. And, and he would see a snake crossing the river, and he'd make the boatman deviate over so that he could reach down and grab it. And he'd grab it and throw it in the back of the boat with anybody that was there, whether it was his wife Marjorie or her friends who were with her or the whole group. And he'd shout, what do you think that is? <laughs> There were a lot of venomous snakes, and he knew, of course, what he put in the boat wasn't venomous, but it was just that kind of like shocking people with, with nature and seeing how they responded. Tortuguero, Costa Rica was the world's first sea turtle research program, and its history is deeply tied with Archie's, who launched the research there.
Here are Chuck Carr and David Godfrey talking about the beach and his early work at Tortuguero. And the whole family moved to Costa Rica where he was asked to, to revamp the biology program at the big University of Costa Rica. And by then, by that year, he was aware of the black beach at Tortuguero uh, in Costa Rica. And he had made a, a visit to that beach and confirmed that there were green turtles uh, nesting on it periodically. Well, I went with him on a second trip and that was kind of a kick. We flew down, I was 10, 11 years old. You had to fly to Puerto Limon, a kind of a port town, and then take a little charter Cessna down to Tortuguero where there was a grass airstrip. And that's how we got in. And we spent a couple of nights there and getting more acquainted with, with the beach and the people in the village there. He wanted to tag the turtles. It's sort of tag and recapture is the methodology. He used a, what they call a Monel metal. It's some kind of an alloy that involves nickel and something else. I don't really remember. But you put the tag on it, it has some information on, written on it. It says, please return this tag to the University of Florida for a reward if you catch the turtles. He had to have a station house built to accommodate students who would walk the beach, catch the turtles, and put on tags and get measurements and whatnot. And uh, National Science Foundation was impressed with the whole plan of figuring out the secrets of the sea turtles through this tag recapture method. And and it went on from there, just, and it's still going strong. <laughs> but anyway, I was pleased as a kid. I got to see, the, see that village and, and see the very beginnings of the turtle tagging program. For your listeners and for you, Brad, I'm not sure if you know um, Larry Ogren's quick story, but Larry was an undergraduate at the University of Florida. Uh, in the biology department when Dr. Carr was there. And it was early in the days of the, the CCC. And by then, Archie had already gone out to Tortuguero for one or two seasons to start tagging the turtles and monitoring the turtles. But he needed somebody to go out there and work the season. And so he was looking for one of his graduate students. You know, he had PhD students and master's degree students. And he asked around and nobody was up for it. I mean, he could not get any volunteers. I guess, you know, word was out that this place was really remote. And if you think Tortuguero is remote now, imagine it in the, in the 1950s. The word got to, uh, to Archie that uh, this undergraduate, Larry, was game. And so it, it came to be that Larry Ogren, the undergraduate, was, was tapped by Archie to be the first student to oversee the tagging operation at Tortuguero. And Archie gathered up all the, uh, the materials that they needed. Uh, they they you know, embarked on this great journey, which, which it was at that time, uh, you know, to get to Tortuguero. They had to fly from Limon, uh, finally up to Tortuguero and land on this dirt runway on a, a little plane they had hired in Limon. They, uh, they landed. And uh, Larry tells a story about how they had all these supplies. And so Archie was sitting on the plane and he, had, he told Larry, hey, go ahead and you know, start, start stacking these over there one at a time. Start. And so Archie's in the back of the plane sliding you know, all these supplies to the door and Larry would 
dutifully pick up a box and take it over to the side and set it down. And this went on for a little while until they were down to the last box. And you know, Larry picked that last box and started to walk over and, and, uh, and set it down. And then all of a sudden the plane started to rev up and Larry turned around and looked back and the plane's starting to move. And Archie has his uh, head hanging out the door and he's like, all right, uh, so Larry, uh, I'll be back in two months. You know, that you're going to stay there. And if you need anything, uh, uh, look up uh, Sabella. She's in town. She'll cook for you. All right, have a good summer. And the plane whizzes and flies off. And, and he had never told Larry that he was going to be left there alone. <laughs> he just ditched him completely. Oh, but, you know, they laughed at that for, for years ever and remained lifelong friends. Archie was a mentor to so many current leaders in the sea turtle community. Here are Annie Malin and Karen Bjorndahl talking about how he supported their work. He, and he had people coming from all over the world to, to see him and just talk to him for five minutes because he was such a, a nice person and he was interested, you know, he listened. And so they'd come and as his research assistant, I often would kind of help with the scheduling and the person would come in and talk to him for five minutes, tell them what they're doing, you know, in their particular project or whatever. And he would barely, he didn't have time to do much at all, but they would come out and be just transfixed like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, now I know what I want to do with my life, you know? And I, I think one of the things was that everybody saw how much fun his life was to him you know, just how much he enjoyed studying biology. And, and, and he studied a lot more than sea turtles, of course. But I mean, it made my husband and me appreciate that our jobs, you know, were always fun. And our kids noticed that and they go, my gosh, you guys like to go to work or you like to work. You like to get up in the morning and work. Your job is fun. And certainly I think we learned that um, in large part from Dr. Carr. He was, you know, all mentors kind of fall on the, the, the uh, micromanaging continuum from, from micromanaging to, to laissez-faire. And um, Archie was, without question, at the very far end of the laissez-faire. So it was always a joke among the graduate students in, in my class that whenever anybody would ask Archie, you know, when I was living down in the Bahamas, and they'd say, oh, how's Karen doing down there? And, you know, how's her work going? And Archie would say, oh, she's doing great. She's great. You know, she's doing this behavioral study, um, you know, looking at, you know, what they're, how they spend each day. And, and then the graduate students would say, well, you know, Archie, that, that's really not what she's doing. She's looking at this energetic and nutrition question. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, um so as you can see, he wasn't exactly um, minutiae minded, but you know he that was so unimportant. Um, you know that aspect of mentoring. Much more important was that I knew he always um, would support me. Uh, he always did support me, and uh, when the things that are important, and he he taught me all of the things about um, academics and many things about life that are the most important you know how how not to get caught up in the politics how to um, really establish good relationships with with colleagues and students 
And I think that's one of the most inspiring things about Archie was how, how he was able to inspire such great loyalty in his colleagues and in his students. You know, it was just so much fun being with him and he always made you feel good about yourself. It was a, a characteristic that is, I have found in my life all too rare um, in individuals. And it was undoubtedly one of his real strengths. Through his writing, Archie helped launch a movement to protect sea turtles around the world. The Windward Road and So Excellent a Fish are his best known works, but he wrote many other books and articles. Here are David Godfrey and Annie Malin talking about his writing. Dr. Carr's writings are written for both the scientist and the layperson. And when you read his work, you're learning a great deal about science and ecology and conservation. But the words are constructed in a way that is pure poetry. And, and you just have to read him to, to understand what I'm talking about. He wrote um, one of the Bibles for turtles in North America, the Handbook of Turtles. At the time, that was the most authoritative and interesting reference on turtles that had existed. And uh, I guess I don't know that people know that. And he, he wrote on a lot of other topics, but he, he was interested in everything from his hound dog and how it could smell a scent to... Um, you know, his alligator in the backyard, I know he'd come in in the morning, sit right down and start writing. And he'd write with pen and paper. You know, he didn't use a computer. He'd write a first draft and then he'd get somebody to type that up. And then he would edit the typed version over and over and over and over again. And, you know, the writing just went so quickly and just, you know, it, you could really see how, how he wrote. Archie's impact is felt in every aspect of sea turtle research and conservation today. Here are a couple of stories of his ambitious efforts to study and protect these animals by David Godfrey and Karen Bjorndal. It all goes back to very shortly after Archie had published his, what is now a seminal book, The Windward Road, which alerted the world to the, uh, the plight of sea turtles. And that book had made its way into the hands of Joshua Powers, um, who was himself involved in the publishing world and, and actually oversaw the publication of books that dealt with Latin America. And um, The Windward Road largely dealt with that part of the world. And so it came to the, to the attention of this guy, Josh Powers, who read it and was immediately moved by uh, the incredible stories of the people and the environment, and particularly the sea turtles of, of the Caribbean and of Tortuguero, Costa Rica in particular. And in that book, Archie really raises the alarm about the, the loss of this species, of green turtles in particular. Joshua Powers decided that, you know, himself, that he wanted to uh, do something to help form an organization that would have as its mission studying and protecting green turtles and uh, supporting the the work of Dr. Carr. And so without even having spoken to Archie about his ideas, Josh Powers sent copies of the book out to a number of his uh, uh, influential uh, friends 
and said, uh, you know, please read this book by Archie Carr, The Windward Road. And by doing so, you will become uh, one of the founding members of the Brotherhood of the Green Turtle. A bunch of the people he sent the book to responded and said, essentially, I'm in. You know, th this is great. What do we do? How can we, how can we help Dr. Carr? So they, they then contacted Archie, told him about, you know, this group that had been assembled, invited him to come to New York for the first actual meeting of this brotherhood. And Archie went, and it was in December of 1959. Uh, there's actually a, a, a story about this meeting in the New York Times. Um, some of these people who attended were very influential people, uh, members of the Frick family. If you know New York, you've heard of the Frick Museum. Um, there was members of the Phipps family, one of the, one of the most powerful steel companies in America. There was a, a Rockefeller in attendance. And people who were, you know, engaged in, in sort of global conservation initiatives got involved early on, and uh, they decided to uh, incorporate this entity in Florida, where Dr. Carr was based, so that he would run it. And, of course, Archie was all in. It was a, a unique opportunity to start a lasting program of monitoring and protection of green turtles initially in Tortuguero, uh, but of course spreading beyond that after that. It, it was novel and, and to their knowledge, and I believe today, the, the first organization formed specifically to protect sea turtles, uh, and, it, and it still continues to this day. Um, we had celebrated our 60th anniversary last year. But yeah, that's how uh, the Brotherhood of the Green Turtle started. Uh, it was incorporated shortly after as the Caribbean Conservation Corporation, a name that served the organization well for a very long time, but which we uh, finally in uh, 2010 decided we ought to have sea turtle in our name somewhere. Uh, and so the Sea Turtle Conservancy uh, became the new name of, of, of the organization. So Archie, of course, had a global impact through his research and his writings. The basic approach that he developed at Tortuguero has been repeated throughout the world. And he was responsible for directly uh, helping establish some of the other long-term uh, sea turtle nesting projects that are still ongoing, such as those of Jim Richardson in Georgia. Uh, Jim approached him as a, a young student and Archie was happy to go up to, to Georgia and Little Cumberland Island, work with Jim, train him, supply him with tags and anything else he needed. And there were uh, many other um, projects similar to that established throughout the world directly as a result of, of Archie's outreach. In fact, Archie was well known for, you know, if anybody would write and ask and say they wanted to tag turtles, he'd send off a hundred turtle tags and, and an applicator. There was a, a lot of new projects founded um, because of that generosity on Archie's part. And still, actually, we keep that tradition going in our center today um, because with funding from the National Marine Fisheries Service, we still distribute about 10,000 tags every year um, to programs throughout the Atlantic um, for tagging sea turtles. To wrap up, I wanted to include two great summaries of Archie by Karen Bjorndal and David Godfrey.
you know, one of the lines that I, I really loved from David Ehrenfeld's article, um, if you'll allow me to read that now, he's talking about that how Archie was always so concerned about the loss of the natural world and felt that much of it had already been lost. But, but David says, however, he lived fully and still found much to celebrate. He was one of the last great minstrels of wilderness, singing a song of joy mixed with abiding melancholy, a song that saddened his listeners even as it gave them heart to fight, as he did, against the unthinkable outcome. Archie was such a, a phenomenon because he was so good at several things. All of those things combined helped lead to his legacy. You know, there are, are lots of good scientists, and he was a phenomenal scientist. There are good educators, and he was a phenomenal educator, really inspired his students and the people around him. And there are good communicators, and he was a world-class writer. Mixed in with those three really important attributes and abilities was uh, somebody who, who was just incredibly passionate about whatever he was doing, and that passion was infectious to the people around him. Uh, he approached things with, with an incredible sense of humor and passion that just uh, drew people to him, uh, helped him effectively get his message out. And when you combine that with just uh, an elite level of scientific knowledge and an investigative mind, uh, and then the ability to articulate what he learned in, in writing that I can best describe as poetry. Dr. Carr's writings are written for both the scientist and the layperson. And when you read his work, you're learning a great deal about science and ecology and conservation, but the words are constructed in a way that is pure poetry. And you just have to read him to, to understand what I'm talking about. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Save the Wild podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Karen, Annie, David, and Chuck, and our sponsor, Nature's Path EnviroKids. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and share, and have a great sea turtle week. Mm-hmm.